The International Association for Near-Death Studies presents NDE Radio, a weekly exploration of near-death experiences and similar encounters with the other side. Now, here's your host, Lee Whitting. Welcome once again to NDE Radio with me, Lee Whitting. Whether you're listening by podcast or through the archives of our ad-free shows on our YouTube channel. When he was just 16, our guest today, Randy Schieffer, was so traumatized by his beloved father's death that it set a course for the rest of his life that only a series of COVID-induced NDEs could overcome. On that fateful day, Randy, his mother, and younger sister were in a Florida hotel room when his father collapsed with a massive heart attack. While his mother screamed at Randy to do something to save his father and his six-year-old little sister wept, Randy desperately tried to remember what he'd once read in a handbook on how to do CPR. He did everything he could. He ran down the hall, pounded on doors to get help, pleaded with a hotel clerk to call an ambulance. But in the end, it all proved hopeless, and his dad died in Randy's arms. Randy blamed himself for the death of his dad. But more than that, the, the guilt left Randy with an obsession about death itself. After earning an undergraduate degree in psychology, he committed himself to a master's degree in forensic science and a career as a homicide detective, attending autopsies and specializing in death investigations. He spent 20 years in the United States Air Force working with their security police and as a special agent in the Office of Special Investigations. And from the Air Force, Randy started teaching at the collegiate level, entering as an adjunct instructor and working his way to department chair and finally as the college campus director. And all that time, Randy remained quiet about his greatest secret, the panic attacks he felt when he thought about his own death. He could not even consider it without violent PTSD reactions, flailing about, a spasmodic display of the terror that possessed him. And because of all this, Randy today feels great gratitude for his near-fatal bout with COVID, which came on March of 2020. And today, Randy will tell you how his COVID-induced NDEs actually saved his life. Randy Schieffer, welcome to NDE Radio. Oh, thank you so much, Lee. It's such a pleasure to be on, on your show today. Thank you so much for inviting me. Oh, well, it's great to have you. Yours is a, a remarkable and unique story. Uh, Randy, first, tell me if I got anything wrong in, in my introduction about how PTSD from your father's death led you to a career as a death detective. No, sir. You got all of that excellently spot on. That was the first true traumatic experience that I had gone through. And my father and I were very, very close. And um, I never dealt with it. I never dealt with his death. I never dealt with um, gr the grieving process. Hmm. And you know, he died in 1969. So there wasn't um, you know, a whole lot of, of assistance and therapy programs that, that we have today. Yes. I was an ambulance attendant in the 80s, and even then we didn't have defibrillators on board the ambulance, just to give yeah. you an idea of how long it took for people to, to get on with the necessary work of uh, uh, extended CPR. Yeah. Oh, anyway, in fact, if you remember, even <laughs> in 1969, they call it pulmonary resuscitation, completely yeah. different to the CPR that we know, you know today. Yes. And not everybody was trained in it. And uh, uh, I happened to read a, a, a few pages out of a chapter and um, I lived with that guilt of not finishing that chapter, not um, saving my father. And um, uh, I guess some of it as well is, is the traumatic experience that my mother went through uh, from then on uh, because of my failure. Yeah. And I'm sure that you felt that uh, as well. Uh, given what you told me about his, the fact that he needed a stent, um, I don't think there was anything you could have done, um, even if you'd mastered CPR to bring him back under those conditions. It was just a blockage he couldn't, he couldn't overcome, and you wouldn't have been able to either. You know, one of the ironies of all this is when you think you came face to face with life threatening COVID, it sort of snuck up on you. I mean, there you were so afraid of death, but 
your daughter dropped you off at the ER and said, I'll wait for you in the car like it was you're going to go in and and take a pill and and be out to to see her in a few minutes. And and neither of you realized how close to death you were. No, not at all. Um, She actually came to, you know, I had had gone to see my primary care doctor uh, just a few days before. And he just, and this was in March of 2020. So I got it very, very early on. And he just basically told me, he says, oh, you have the flu. You know, my wife has the same thing. Go home, rest, come back in a week, you know, if you're not feeling better. Well, two days later, um, I was so nauseous and I knew I was sick. Um, and I had I had asked him as well in that first visit to test me for COVID. And he said, no, you don't have that. He says, Just go home and rest. <clears throat> so I was able to get a second appointment or second same day appointment, I should say. And I went back to see, this time, a physician assistant. And he told me the exact same thing that the doctor told me. He says, oh, you have the flu. He says, my wife is home with the same thing. And I'm sitting there saying, is this like a standard response? You know? <laughs> and, uh, you know go, and I said, look, I am sick. I know I'm sick. Can I get tested for COVID? And, you know, and at the time, back in 2020, they had those five or six questions that they would ask you, you know, have you traveled? Have you been in contact with somebody who's, you know, and of course it was all no, no, no. And he says, no, go home and rest. He said, come back in a week. Well, the very next day, my oldest daughter stopped by the house uh, to check on me because my wife had, had, uh, had to go do an errand for my uh, youngest daughter. So she just swung by the house to check on me. And she called my youngest daughter, Lisa, who's a nurse, and she said, boy, dad really looks gray. He looks sick. So Lisa said, we'll get him to the emergency room right away. So she took me down. And as you said, I walked through that door and, and we blew each other a kiss. And little did I know it would be almost, almost six weeks later before I would ever see a family member again. Wow. Well, I'd like you to, to go through all this, the various steps that you had to go through first, I guess, on a ventilator and then an induced coma, ventilator, dialysis, sure. and then the ECMO share. machine. Yeah, but, let me share with you. Yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah. No, I, that, um, and then I was going to say, uh, the, and yeah. then we should talk about how much your daughters were doing in the meantime to supplement what the hospital was doing. So, yeah, by all means, uh, I have a remarkable family, beautiful family. And, um, um, I'm not sure if I deserve them, and uh, but they stood up for dad and and uh, but let me start from the beginning. You know, they admitted me. My med- I got my medical records after, and I didn't even know this, but they admitted me in critical condition with bilateral pneumonia. My um, pulse oxygen rate in the ER at that time was at 81, and it you know normal it's uh, you know about 90. 95 to 100, you know, and um, so I couldn't exchange the air in my lungs. <clears throat> and they put me up in uh, a regular room on a medical ward. And just a few hours later, they rushed me into the ICU. And within um, two days, within about a day and a half, um, they put me on a ventilator because my pulse ox had dropped down into the 70s. And they put me on the ventilator. And within 24 hours of an event, I maxed it out. So they care flighted me over to a larger hospital. Uh, and I went straight into surgery and put on uh, an ECMO machine, which is, which is basically a heart-lung bypass. Um, essentially, uh, they go in through the right jugular vein with a tube into your heart. And that pulls the blood out, oxygenates it allows the heart and the lungs to rest and try to heal and then pushes the blood back into your, your body. And I was on that for um, 14 days. I was on the ECMO machine for 14 days. And, um, and, and in a medically induced coma, as soon as they put me on uh, the ventilator, they, 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 they put me into um, the coma as well. So, I mean, I was obviously not responsive from being in a coma. I had intubated tube down my throat. I had uh, uh, 
feeding tubes down my nose. Um, within 24 hours of getting on the ECMO, my kidneys failed, uh, and they put me on dialysis for that. And shortly after that, my liver started to throw high enzymes off and mimic, I believe this word is PIC, mimic PIC. And my heart enlarged and started not to pump adequately. So they transferred a lot of that responsibility over to the ECMO machine to try to get my heart stabilized. And then I started to bleed. Uh, COVID attacked my vascular system, and I started to bleed as well. And the, I've got several units of, of blood and, and plasma uh, during the period that, that I was in that coma. And unbeknownst to me, my family was at home uh, fighting for me. Uh, I have three girls uh, and my wife, of course, and they weren't ready to lose their dad and especially to, call, to, to this disease. And they sat, they, they sat down. I had one daughter, my middle daughter, Kate, lived in Nashville and still does, but she flew down. Um, Aaron, my oldest, obviously came right up to the house. And then my younger daughter, Lisa, who's a labor and delivery nurse, was over in Mississippi, living in Mississippi, and she came home to support their mom. And they sat down, I guess, in the living room and said, okay, um, how are we going to help dad? You know, he would be in our bar park helping us if, if we were in that bed. So how can we help him? So Lisa called a friend of hers uh, up in Kentucky. Lisa went to the University of Kentucky and got her nursing degree from there. And her father, this girl that she called, her father was the infectious disease doctor for the state and immediately told Lisa to get me convalescent plasma. Um, immediately, he says, you find a donor and you get him convalescent plasma. So Lisa had told the hospital that she wanted me to receive convalescent plasma. And they denied her request. Uh, they said they weren't a teaching hospital. They weren't a research hospital. And there wasn't enough data on the use of convalescent plasma, if it was even successful. So after several meetings with, with the hospital administrators and doctors, they finally said, well, if you can figure out how to get it, we will consider giving it. So that kicked in. Boy, that, that kicked my girls to work because my oldest daughter um, knew that prayers would work. She, she took on organizing uh, all of the prayer chains. And recently she gave me a, a map um, of the United States, and I think there's only three three states, maybe four, that she did not have someone, a church group, uh, a prayer group, a Bible study group, um, friends, neighbors. They were all praying for me, all praying for my for for me to get better. And then she had um, Canada, Australia, England. Uh, Italy, all praying for me as well. We we know people in those countries, and they all got my and strangers as well emailed, and, and they said they saw my middle daughter Kate put out a post on Facebook, and that they saw the post, and they were they were forming prayer prayer groups uh, for me in these other countries as well. It was just absolutely phenomenal response for a uh, for a man that's not deserving of all of that, you know, I'm sorry, <clears throat> because um, I, I, I never did anything great in my life, um, but my middle daughter put out a post calling for convalescent plasma and explained what it was. It was the plasma from an individual that had COVID and gotten better, but he still has the antibodies to yes. fight COVID. And they removed the plasma and his plasma, and then they would give it to me. Well, they had two pages of volunteers. That, that Facebook message went out to over 70,000 people, 75,000 people wow. that who saw it went around the world. And because they were getting contacted from people around the world, wanting to come to Florida where I live to, 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 to donate um, plasma. Um, so they, they got a hold of our blood 
a donation center, which is One Blood, and <clears throat> talked with them and said they wanted convalescent plasma collected. And One Blood didn't have anybody uh, trained uh, in taking convalescent plasma. But they never said no, and they never said we can't do it. They stepped up and they sent people out to get trained. And they had my, my family identified one young man, not very far from where we live, who volunteered. And he was a, he was a, a, a pastor in, in a local church there. And he stepped up and uh, he donated his plasma. So um, one blood called my family and said that the hospital was in possession of the convalescent plasma. So my daughter called the hospital and said, okay, when are you going to give this to my dad? And they said, well, we've changed our mind. We're not going to do it. We're not going to give it to him. And of course she said, well, why not? Said, well, it's a uh, pathogen. It's a bloodborne product. And we don't know how he's going to react to it. And she said, you've already given him blood. You've already given him plasma. You've already given him other blood products. That's, that's no reason not to give him this. And uh, then they came back and said, well, it was an ethical issue, you know, that the ethical board convened and they determined that, no, they weren't going to give it to me because it was an ethical issue. So they were getting all this pushback from the hospital that, boy, my kids just steadfast and, and weren't going to let me die. In the meantime, they received a phone call from my doctors saying that I had um, about a 3% chance of living. And it's confirmed in my medical records that of my probable demise and that they only had uh, estimated me at a 3% of, of living. And um, my daughters had one, one more meeting with them and that was on Good Friday, 2020 Good Friday, I think it was April the 10th, and um, convinced them that it was the right thing to do to give me this plasma. And they got a phone call that evening from um, uh, from one of the technicians on the ward saying that they had received permission to give it and they were going to give me the convalescent plasma. Um, I received it on Good Friday. By Easter morning, uh, my lungs were completely clear of COVID glass. And remember, my lungs were filled with COVID glass. As white as this white shirt that I have on, I saw the x-ray. Wow. By Sunday, it was completely gone completely gone. Um, um, by Tuesday, my, my kidneys started to fully function and they took me off of dialysis. My liver returned to normal and so did my heart. And the doctor actually called my daughter and said, okay, tell us how you went about getting this convalescent plasma. We, <laughs> we, we want more of it. Uh, and my daughter did. She told him. And matter of fact, they said, well, we really don't have a protocol. We don't have a set of, of, of instructions on, you know, how this operates. And my, my daughter said, well, give me 45 minutes and you'll have your protocol. And she actually sat and wrote the hospital protocol for him. And um, she actually went down and donated her plasma because she had COVID as well and had very, very mild symptoms. But she had the antibodies and she actually donated her plasma and it went to four different people. Uh, that day, and and uh, they survived. So I was the first person in Northwest Florida to receive convalescent plasma, and the 34th in the nation. And I know that because my family had to go to the FDA for emergency authorization use, and um, my number that came back was 00034. So I was the 34th person that received wow. it in the nation as well. That's a tremendous story. Okay. So we are going to move on into your NDEs now. <laughs> you know, I truly believe, generally speaking, that NDEs are personalized, that they're designed through, this, I don't know what the mechanics of it are, but they are personalized. And this one, the four that you had, seemed to be designed as a detective adventure. They were designed just for you, I think. And I say this because you managed to sneak into heaven with nobody watching. Every time it was just like an adventure story. Yeah, so, I, I was a little sleuth. I kind of slid in and they kind of looked <laughs> at me and said, What are you doing here? You know, get out. Um, yeah, I mean, like you said before, I was 
I was a homicide detective and, uh, you know, my whole world, um, for over 30 years evolved around evidence, you know, evidence of a crime. And I like to say, well, there's two, several different kinds of evidence, but I use these two as circumstantial evidence where you can infer something, you know, um, like the Bible, uh, uh, you know, one of Jesus's brothers, um, didn't really believe in his, his scripture until he saw him after resurrection um, and then started to believe. So you can infer that one led to the other. That's circumstantial evidence. But my world is physical evidence. I had to see, I had to find the fingerprints. I had to find the blood stain. I had to find the DNA. I had to have that direct link to show me that something uh, you know, the crime occurred and, and who committed it. So, you know, I, and I wasn't a very religious person at all. Um, you know, in a nutshell, I think my father's death contributed somewhat to that as well, because uh, my mother was very angry over that. And um, church and, and, and God just kind of became secondary. I mean, we didn't pray. We didn't go to church. Um, we didn't talk about it often. I think I went to... Uh, sunrise services on the beach a few times but that was only to impress some girl that i was trying to get to date me um and that was about the extent of my of my religious belief never read the bible never really understood it never even tried to do that hmm. so that's why i was coming rigid religiously um but <clears throat> while my kids were fighting for me uh and i was in this coma um, I really laid kind of in the abyss between life and death. I was on that thin, thin razor line and I never officially died. I never coded, but I was as close as, as someone, you know, could get. And I remember, uh, waking up, my consciousness awoke and I was in a dark, I called it at the time, a tube, um, a, a dark tunnel like, and I was, wasn't moving really fast. But it was surrounded in a, in a white light, beautiful light. And you could feel the warmth inside this tube. And I was trying to struggle to figure out where I was and what was happening. But it put me into a, a beautiful room. I came out and I was in this beautiful, I mean, large hall. It was absolutely magnificent. It had large chandeliers uh, from the ceiling, uh, big, big uh, uh, stained glass windows on both sides of the hall, big archways, big, beautiful golden archways uh, around and big water features all over. And I, I could sense there was commotion on the floor of this hall that I was in. But again, I snuck in the back door here. So I, I don't think that I was allowed to fully see what was going on because I wasn't there too long. It didn't seem anyway that, um, this spirit came up to me and it was an old, older gentleman. He had uh, a beard and um, uh, kind of a flowing gown on a, a, a kind of not wasn't a white. I want to say it was a dark flowing gown. And he came up to me and we briefly talked about how gorgeous this, this golden room was. It was absolutely beautiful. The floors was opaque. Um, these archways were all outlined with gold. And, but, and, and then he finally said, um, you do not belong here. You have to leave. And he pointed over to a set of big, beautiful oak doors. And um, afterwards, it reminded me, well, you know, as a criminal investigator, I've been asked to leave a lot of crime scenes. So um, I was asked to leave. So I, I, I walked over to these big, beautiful oak doors. and. I walked out and I was in this magnificent city, absolutely gorgeous, magnificent city. And it was so clean and so beautiful. And the, the, the building structures just rose up as high as you could see them. And they were gold with opaque, almost clear opaque glass on them. And I remember my consciousness moving through these cities and I would pass parks. And the parks were just beautifully, beautifully maintained, beautiful, uh, beautiful green grass 
I've been to the highlands of Scotland and Ireland, and I've seen green grass, but it was more brilliant than even that. It was just absolutely gorgeous trees with magnificent color. And I continued in this this um, city, and suddenly I realized that I was lost, and I I couldn't find my way back. That I didn't couldn't get back to where I was, and I became very scared and frightened because I was lost. And I said, who's going to find me or how am I going to get found? How am I going to get back? And I remember that I was cold. I was very cold. And I sat down on the curb, I guess it was. And I sat down and I was cold and I was tired and I was scared, you know, and I looked over my shoulder and rising up into the sky was this beautiful staircase beautiful white staircase it just rose up into the heavens and I said well if I can get to that staircase maybe I can climb up far enough that somebody will see me somebody will find me so I did that I remember making my way over and I started up the staircase and I and I couldn't tell you how far I got I don't know how high I was but I remember somebody yelling out there he is there's Randy get him and it was just like somebody grabbed me by the collar and just whisked me off of that staircase. And I was back in my dark little sedated world, as I call it, you know, I, that just went dark, just went blank. Um, and I didn't know, I didn't, it was a male voice, but I didn't know who grabbed me and, and pulled me off that staircase. And I had an opportunity to go back there, but I was in a different part of the city. When my consciousness awoke, I was in a different part of the city. I guess as a detective, I figured, well, okay, the first coming in the front door didn't work. So let me go in the back door, you know? <laughs> so I started meandering around through the, through the city again. And I finally realized again, it hit me and I knew I was dead. Lee, I, you know, I, I remember clearly saying to myself, you've died. Okay. You're dead, but you're, you traveled somewhere. Where did I travel to? But I was so calm. And I was so at peace and I felt so warm there that, you know, you really don't want to leave. But I got lost and um, I said, well, I know where those steps are. And I made my way back to those steps. And I started again to go up the steps and I heard the same voice cry out again. There he is. There's Randy. Get him. But I turned. I remember turning and looking. And I saw this um, older gentleman, white beard with, with flowing white hair, and he was dressed in kind of a white gown. And he grabbed me. He's the one that grabbed me and pulled me off of that staircase. Um, so um, I guess the security guards came out and, uh, and said, there he is. He's trying to penetrate the perimeter again, get him. <laughs> and uh, they threw me back out, you know. But I was a very pesky little investigator and I, I, my spirit, it was, must be the same way because it didn't take no for an answer. And remember, Lee, I don't know the sequence of any of these, you know, what I'm telling you now could have been last or, you know, my next little story where I was, I don't, I don't know the sequence of any of them. I just remember having them being yes. there and experiencing this. And it was, the experience was more than real. Um, I had dreams. I definitely had dreams and I had hallucinations. And I can tell the difference. Immediately, I can tell the difference between the two. And as I told my daughter, these were different. My dreams involved people that were still living. They, they involved my daughter. Um, they involved some neighbors and friends of ours. So they all involved people and, and the dreams were like a dream state. You know, they weren't real clear. The, your vision is kind of foggy, you know, and, and so they were dreams. And there's no doubt in my mind that they were dreams. My hallucinations, um, they were just, they were scary at some times. I remember laying there and I started to see these multicolored lightning bolts coming at me. And I remember opening my eyes and looking 
And I looked up at the ceiling and I heard this God awful music playing <laughs> and six, six panda bears dancing on the ceiling. And I said to myself, you know, you're dead and you must be in hell. <laughs> I said, but there is no way that I can lay here and watch this for eternity. <laughs> but when I closed my eyes again, I got the lightning bolts. You know? mm. And I remember, you know, wait, closing my eyes and seeing the pandas and or seeing the lightning bolts and opening my eyes and seeing the pandas and going between the two of them until finally it was gone. That hallucination was gone. I can tell you others too that I had that were simply hallucinations. But my NDEs were so real and so vivid. There was no doubt in my mind whatsoever that I traveled. Matter of fact, when Lisa, my last week in the hospital, when I finally came off the ventilator and came off ECMO and everything, um, they allowed Lisa, the nurse, to come in and spend the last three or four days with me. And I remember telling her right away, before I even realized what had happened to me, I said, Lisa, I went somewhere I traveled. And I remember her saying, we're here fighting for you and you're off traveling around the world. What is up with that? You know? Well, and, uh, um, speaking of traveling, um, I'd love to hear the, there are two more NDEs that you had. And uh, I thought we might get through that. Well, maybe the next one could be the dirt path with the beautiful okay. flowers on yeah. either side. Yeah. Yeah. No, and I woke up. My, yeah. My, my consciousness awoke. Again, and I was making my way down this dirt path. <clears throat> and on both sides of the pathway were beautiful flowers, ornate vegetation, just beyond imagined colors, and big, huge, beautiful trees. And I was walking, or my consciousness, I should say, was moving down this pathway. And suddenly before me, this little boy comes out. And I don't even know where he came from, but he, he just appeared. And he was very animated, very animated little boy. And he had olive skin and he had uh, what we call the old bowl cut. You know, his hair was kind of cut down right above his eyebrows, you know, <laughs> olive skin. He had a little pair of shorts on, no shirt, no shoes, but very animated. And he was sitting there and he started yelling, follow me, follow me. So I did. I followed him. And short distance, he took me into a room. And he told me, he says, wait here. He says, I'll, I'll be back. So he's put me in this room and it was a very beautiful room. It had paintings and, and gold and it had these uh, big round red pedestal uh, seats, you know. So I was waiting. And again, you know, time is not relevant up in heaven. So I don't know how long I was there, but I remember seeing a picture window and I walked over to the picture window and I saw this stream that ran underneath the building and it kind of meandered off in the distance. And it too was lined with the same type of vegetation that I saw down the path, it's beautiful trees and flowers and a few people, I saw a few people in, in the stream. They weren't playing or, you know, but they were casually standing on the side in the water on the banks, kind of talking and things like that. And I was waiting for this little boy and I was taking in all of this, the sights and the warmth. And again, I remember clearly saying to myself that I was dead, but I didn't know where I was or what was going on. And I kept questioning myself, what is happening? What is happening? And, and suddenly this little boy comes back into the room, same little boy. And he goes, I'm sorry, you have to leave. And I said, but I don't really want to leave. I said, this is beautiful. You know, I feel so loved and accepted. I said, and I'm so calm. I've have not been this calm my whole life. And he goes, no, he goes, I'm sorry. Your room is not ready. You have to leave. And with that, I went back into my dark little sedated world. Hmm. Uh, and the Bible talks about God going up and preparing a room for you. And uh, my room wasn't ready. So I got kicked out of it again. <laughs> so, um, uh, but I didn't give up. I knew I bound to determine I was going to get into heaven some way. <laughs> so I remember I, I, my, my conscious came alive again. And I was in um, now 
I understand it, it was the void. Uh, and it was a dark area, not um, uh, not real pitch black dark, almost like a very late dusk, I say. You could see some distance in front of you. And I was standing there and my consciousness was looking around and these little white orbs of light was kind of dashing all around us, around me, I should say. And suddenly I felt their presence of someone next to me. I couldn't see them, but I felt their presence. I knew someone was there. And he telepathically, no words were said, telepathically he told me to follow him. So I followed him. And we started to go through into this void. And Lee, you've been to the theater and you're sitting there in the audience looking at a very dark stage. Well, suddenly off in the distance, there's a light that slowly comes on and gets brighter and brighter. And suddenly there's a actor or actress sitting on stage. And that's what happened. I was moving through and this little light to my right, left-hand side started to come on. And as we moved closer, it got brighter and brighter and brighter until I saw my deceased mother-in-law sitting there. And she had her arm rested and the only description I can use is it was like a bar and she had her arm rested on the bar and she was sitting on this this uh, chair very regally very straight head rise very regal you know and um, uh, she was beautiful looking uh, she died of Lou Gehrig's disease which is a horrible horrible disease yes. and, and um, uh, but she was absolutely gorgeous. I told my wife she was probably in her mid-30s, but she had this beautiful white bow around her hair. She always had very long hair, and the hair was pulled up with this very beautiful white bow, and she had this white flowing gown on with a with a white belt around her waist and long sleeves, and she looked over at me, and when she did, I started yelling for her, Dolores, it's me, it's Randy, I'm here, Randy. And she wouldn't acknowledge me. She wouldn't talk to me. She wouldn't say anything. But she just simply looked away. And I couldn't get her attention. Uh, and then suddenly, this young man runs by, uh, runs by us. And I recognized immediately as a deceased brother-in-law. And uh, he died of a drug overdose. And it was him. It was in his late teens, I would say. And he didn't acknowledge me. He didn't acknowledge his mother, but he just kind of ran right past us. And um, my spirit guide told me we needed to move forward. We needed to move on. So as we were moving on, off in the distance, the light that was shining above my mother-in-law just slowly dimmed out, became very weak and dimmed out until she just totally disappeared. So we moved further. And again, as we moved deeper, off to my left, but further back, much further back, this light started to come on again. And I was sitting there saying, my parents, my parents, it's my parents. And there was my dad, my mom, and my sister. I didn't see them as well as, as I saw my mother-in-law because they were, they were kept at a distance from me. And, uh, but I knew it was them. Immediately, I knew it was them. And I started yelling again, dad, mom, Gina, it's me, it's Randy. I'm here, I'm here, talk to me, I'm here. And they wouldn't. They actually turned their backs. My dad turned away first. And my mom and my sister stood for a few more seconds and then slowly just turned away and wouldn't acknowledge me. But while I was standing there, I felt that there was a barrier, an invisible barrier between me and them. Um, my daughters later told me, Dad, that would have been the veil of death. Uh, and it makes sense that my mother-in-law and my, my, my parents, my sister, didn't acknowledge me because they didn't want me to move forward. They didn't want me to pass through that veil of death because they knew it wasn't my time. And so they didn't want that connection to me to make me move forward, you know? So they, um, uh, they didn't. They didn't acknowledge me at all. So um, I was standing there, and again, in 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 heaven, you can you can 
virtually see 360 degrees. You know, you get the feeling that you know everything that's going on around you. And way back behind me, I'm over my right shoulder, this orb of light. I don't know what caught my attention to it, but I saw this orb of light approaching very, very quickly. And he came from my right hand side and he came right in front of me and he stopped and I saw his face just for a brief second. But he says to me, tell Madison at the salon, her grandfather's okay. And I knew he was a veteran. I mean, I'm a veteran. I had 20 years in the Air Force um, and I just automatically knew and felt that he was a veteran. And he moved on to a white porch. Uh, and when he moved past me, he became that orb of light again. And he walked, he, he moved over and got onto a white porch. And he was an orb of light in human form. And he started making red, white, and blue ribbons and American flags. And it was shortly after that, that my spirit guide said, you've got to leave. You have to go. You can't go any further. You have to go back. And my I went back into my dark little sedated world of, um, of darkness. So when I finally came out of the coma and my daughter was with me, um, I started to tell her these experiences. And she said, Dad, who is Madison? And I said, I don't know a Madison. I have no idea who Madison is. And she said, well, did you recognize the man that gave you the message? And I said, no, I don't know who he is. I've never saw him before. So she said, well, how are we going to find her? And I said, well, I have to. I said, I have a responsibility to find her. I was given this message. I have to find her. So a few days later, I'm discharged uh, from the hospital, and I had to learn to walk again, and I had to learn to swallow and um, a few other things. And I was home in my wheelchair. And I was home for, I don't know, maybe three, four, five days. And something drew me to my dresser. I don't know why. I was started rumbling through my dresser, one of the drawers in my dresser. And I came across a business card. And it was for a local barbershop here in town. So I took it out to my daughter. And I said, hey, could you call these people and find out, you know, with COVID going on and all the restrictions that we had to deal with, could you find out what? their policy is for getting my hair cut. I said, I'd like to get it cut. So I came back, I wheeled myself back into my bedroom here and and, uh, she came back a few minutes later. And now I'm the interrogator in the family, okay? Yes. My kids grew up with me interrogating them and their boyfriend. (laughs) Well, she starts interrogating me, okay? Dad, where'd you get this card? I said, what do you mean, where did I get it? Where did you get it? I don't know where I got it. Well, where did you find it? I found it in the dresser. How long have you had it? I said, Lisa, enough with the questions. What do you want? And she goes, Dad, I think we found your Madison. What are you you talking about? And she handed me the card. She goes, look at the card. And here in the card, clear as day, was written Madison Logan Hmm. on the card. I never recognized it. I never saw it. But there it was, clear as day. I said, make an appointment with her. I want her to cut my hair. So she called down. Sure enough, they had a Madison at the barbershop. And um, my daughter took me down because obviously I couldn't drive. So she took me down and um, we're sitting there waiting. They allowed me to come inside. Everybody else had to wait outside. But they allowed me to come inside because I was on a walker at that time. So I asked my daughter, I said, which one do you think is Madison? And she goes, do you recognize any of them? I said, well, I kind of recognize most of them. You know, I've been here before. Um, So it wasn't a few minutes where this young, very beautiful, very sweet young girl walks up, dark hair. And she goes, hi, I'm Madison. She goes, are you Randy? And I said, yeah. And she goes, okay, I think you're my next appointment. So she takes me back and, and she starts to cut my hair. And Lisa's telling her um, about my experience, what I had gone through, not my NDEs, but just my how sick I was and I almost died. And um, um, so I said, Madison, I said, can I ask you some personal questions? 
And she said, yeah, sure, go ahead. So I said, well, are both of your grandfathers still alive? And she goes, no. She says, my one grandfather, who I was closest with, passed away less than a year ago. Remember, this is when I talked to her in, in May of 2020, because he died less than a year ago. And I said, oh, I said, was he local? Did he live in our local area? And she goes, no. She goes, he lived up in Iowa. She goes, his whole life, he, was, he lived in Iowa. And I said, well, have you ever visited this area? Nope, he's never visited this area either. And um, I said, was he uh, a veteran? And she says, yes, he I was a, a veteran. And that uh, uh, she says he talked about uh, the Army and Sorry, talked about Vietnam. And um, uh, she says, so, yeah, he was a veteran. <clears throat> and I said, Madison. I said, I think your grandfather came to me. So I told her what he said. I said, this, he came to me and he told me, he told Madison at the salon, her grandfather's okay. And he wants to know Madison that he's safe and, and he's okay. And so she starts crying. I'm crying. Lisa's crying. People in the barbershop are looking over saying, don't go to that hairstylist because she's going to make you cry. <laughs> So, <laughs> so, um, I said, Madison, I said, um, now I, you remember Lee, I was an investigator. So I put my very best investigator hat on and designed these questions specifically to lead me to verifying this. So I said, Madison, I said, um, he moved on to a white porch. Is that significant to you somehow? And she's that would have been his house in Iowa. It had a white porch, and he loved sitting on the white porch. She's especially after he retired. He'd sit out there and work on the computer and, and talk to the people they passed by and everything. And um, I said, Madison, I said, he started to make red, white, and blue ribbons and American flags. I said, is that something that you know about? Lee, she looked at me like I had a third eye, hmm. and she said that he belonged to the American Legion in town. And every Veterans Day, the whole family would go down to support him and the veterans, and they made red, white, and blue ribbons and American flags to the veterans' graves. Wow. There was your evidence, Detective. Yeah. I, that was my physical evidence for sure, you know, yeah. um, because God knew God knew that I needed that. He knew that he I needed proof. He was showing it to me. Mm. I just didn't recognize it. Mm -hmm. but, and but he he said, okay, we got to get this guy what he wants. He's got to have something tangible, you know, that he knows that there is a heaven, that there is an afterlife, and and I do have a plan for the, for for him. And he gave me that yeah. and um, by my physical evidence. So I have tangible proof that there is life after death. Mm -hmm. Totally changed my attitude about dying. I'm no longer afraid to die. It's very peaceful. Uh, and I, I, I don't fear it at all anymore. There was one, one other thing I wanted to ask you about. Uh, the white-haired lady that you remembered coming in without a mask on while you're in the hospital oh. to comfort you? Yeah. The nurse that I talked to while I was intubated. Mm. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. That was, um, I, when I came out of the hospital and, 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 and started to get around a little bit, um, I had an appointment and I asked my wife to, if I could come along and, and I wanted to go over to the hospital where I was and try to get up on the floor and thank some of the nurses that worked so diligently to to so I would survive. And there was one in particular that I just loved. Her name was Mallory. But she had a very big black gas mask type thing on. And when I described it to her, she seemed somewhat surprised. She says, Mr. Schaefer, you were in a coma. She says, how did you know what type of mask that I was wearing? Or how did you know that you know, I was wore this or I had my hair up in the bun. And, and I said, Mallory, I, I, I saw you. I clearly saw you. And I said, where is the 
I said, I had an older nurse and I said, uh, white hair, glasses. And I said, um, kind of short, not real tall. Um, I said, she came in and talked to me every day. And she kind of looked at me and I said, and, and she didn't have any protective equipment on. I said, because she would sit and rub, them and hold, hold, rub my hand and hold my hand. And I, I could feel the skin to skin contact. And she kind of looks at me, she says, Mr. Schieffer, everybody that came in, you were in isolation. She goes, everybody that came in had to wear perfective equipment, you know, the mask, the gown, the gloves, the whole nine yards. And I said, no, this lady didn't have that on at all. And she goes, besides, you, um, you had a tube down your throat. She says, how could you talk to anybody with a tube down your throat? And I said, well, I talked to somebody and she came to visit me every day. And I just had it explained to me that, well, that was pr- uh, good. That was probably an angel or my one of my spirit guides uh, mm. that came and and uh, sat with me and 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 talked with me. It let me know that it was going to be, you know, OK, my guardian angel, maybe that came and, and sat and talked to me. But uh, I was told by the nurses that there was nobody that matched that description and certainly nobody in my room without the proper, you know, gear on. Right. So I had some beautiful conversations with her, whoever she is. I hope to see her again. <laughs> so one of the important things that I wanted to stress, whoever may be listening to this, that may have a family member in a coma is to talk to them, you know, hmm. talk to them. Like we're talking right now, have conversations with them because they can hear. And a lot of times they can see. And it's so, so important. Hold their hand and, and, and comfort them because they, they're present. They know that you're there and they know, you know, I couldn't have my family in to do that. And uh, this nurse, whoever she was, um, certainly came in and took that place and comforted me during that time. And I heard my nurses talking. I heard my doctors talking, even though I was in the coma. So, you know, it certainly enlightened me that now that I've kind of learned more about, you know, the whole process, because I had to get educated on all of this. I didn't know what near death experiences were and, uh, or what I experienced, but I had such a, passion to know um when i finished my master's degree i told my wife i said i'm never reading another book again and uh and i held her to it i didn't read a book i said (laughs) but after this nde i have such a a passion that i just want to learn more and i started to investigate what had happened to me and slowly i'm i'm starting to come around and dealing with a lot of the uh of what i experienced my journey Mm -hmm. Now you, I think you said that uh, you came back with a conviction that God wanted you to to come back and tell people what you'd seen, and I'm wondering if you could tell us a little about the reaction you got from medical staff and and maybe clergy members, people that you did try to tell about uh, your experience. Lee, you should say lack of reaction mm. that I got. Um, I did. I I tried to tell. Um, some of the nurses that did come in, um, I tried to tell them uh, what had happened. And, you know, they were very polite. and They would smile and shake their head and, and pat me on the hand, you know, and said, oh, it was probably the drugs. Um, I had uh, doctors that came in and I tried to explain it to them uh, of what had happened and, and what I experienced. And I told them, too, just as I had told you earlier. I had dreams and I had hallucinations and I told them about that. And um, the response basically was, well, you know, drugs will do funny things, you know, and they just, they didn't take me seriously. And it was frustrating to me that they wouldn't take me seriously or uh, listen to what I had to say. Um, I was over, um, being a veteran, I was in the Air Force, you know, for 20 years and uh, I had to go to the VA for some, um, medical tests. And I remember um, a couple of doctors, two doctors came into the the room. One, I think he said was on training. I'm not sure. 
but um, I started to tell him about having COVID so bad and that I was on intubated and I was on ECMO and I was in the coma. I was telling him about my experience. And I started to tell him, I said, um, you know, I, I traveled somewhere. I, I, I had these experiences that were so real that, that um, I, I told him that I was in that city. And I told him about the little boy that told me to follow him and later told me my room wasn't ready. And that's about the only two stories I got out before one of the VA doctors just turned around and walked out of the room. Um, wow. The other VA doctor, you know, you tell your story and you certainly quickly realize the, if they believe you or not, you know, and I mm-hmm. could tell he didn't believe a word I was saying. Um, and that's, that was frustrating. Um, you know, that hurt. And, um, I wanted answers. I wanted answers of what happened to me, where I went, what I experienced. Uh, and I really thought the medical community would provide me some of those answers. And they didn't, they just blew it off to drugs or they blew it off to, um, uh, you know, imagination or I had lucid dreams. Uh, things of that nature. And I knew the difference. I, I knew it wasn't that. It was almost like when I went to my doctor and said, doc, I am sick. And they said, oh, you got the flu. And I said, no, I don't have the flu. <laughs> same same scenario, doc. Mm. I've had this real experience. I went somewhere. I visited these areas. I experienced this. And they were just, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a drug, you know. Matter of fact, I think one of the doctors told me one time, well, they have they have drugs that can help you on that, you know. So I had to go to therapy. Yeah. So I came out and I came out of, with ICU delirium. Now I had PTS for my dad's scenario. And then my sister, when she died, that compounded it. So I, I was I, undiagnosed. I, I dealt with that PTS throughout my life. And I came out of uh, ICU with ICU delirium. And they told me that therapy would, would help. So I found a therapist that I thought that would be um, uh, helpful. And he was highly recommended that he knew how to treat PTS. And I went to see him. And I didn't tell him. I don't think I told him the first session. It was, I, I went to see him a few times before I told him exactly what had happened to me. And he didn't have much to say about it. You know, he just kind of looked and, you know, well, you know, the mind can do that now. And, and you know, you can put yourself in a medi- in meditation and experience the same thing. And, you know, you just felt that he didn't put a whole lot of trust, I guess, is the right word, in into what I experienced. But I knew. I knew differently. Um, so even I had, the therapists weren't much help. And I wanted answers. So I went to the religious side. I said, okay, you know, um, if I went to see God, uh, if I experienced angels, um, surely if I talk to my local priest, um, you know, he can help me deal with this. So I did. I went, I went, I went down and I saw the local priest and I didn't have a dozen words out of my mouth until I realized he didn't believe a word that I was saying. And um, I really thought that he would accept what I was saying, that I, that I went to heaven and I experienced spirits and I experienced God's love. And, and God made me uh, scared in that big city because he knew I was lost, just like the, the lamb, the, the lamb that was lost. So he had to make me feel scared, alone. And then I was found and he found me. And they didn't want to hear it. You know, I had local priests that, um, oh, wow, you, you really went on a interesting journey, didn't you? And then that, that's all he said about it. So that became frustrating because I've been to doctors, I've been to therapists. Now I've been at the local churches, you know, and to the, to the therapist. And I was asked to speak at a uh, Catholic women's breakfast. And, um, they, when somebody had heard uh, my story, 
and asked me to come speak to these ladies. And I said, oh, I'd love to. I said, but you know, before I do, you better check with your priest. And they kind of looked at me funny. And I said, if he doesn't believe in near-death experiences, he's not going to want me to talk. So they came back to me about a week, week and a half later and said, um, we found another speaker. He doesn't want you to speak. Wow. So again, it, you know, religiously, religious leaders weren't much help with me. I did find one religious leader who welcomed me and he was excited for me. Uh, and, and he wanted to hear my stories and he wanted to hear what I experienced and where I, what I had seen and what I, what I experienced. And he even invited me to come talk to their senior ministry so that they could hear um, that there is life after death and you don't have to fear death. There's no reason to fear it because your spirit lives on. You know, I heard a good term the other day. It's not really a death. He is in spirit. I like that. He is in spirit because your body, you know, is our vessel. And once that wears out and dies, your spirit moves on. And, and that's what mine was. Mine moved on. And they just couldn't, they just kept, they just kept kicking my spirit out of heaven. Um, but it's important to find that one person, uh, that will listen to you. And this, the, uh, the uh, pastor that did listen and we had our one hour, uh, meeting turned into a two hour session and, um, uh, he has been very, very helpful with uh, with what I have saw and what I've experienced. He can relate it right back to the Bible, to where I was and, and who was maybe talking with me or what I experienced. And that became very helpful. So you've got to find that person. Lily is that person. I spoke with her. She called me and, and we spent a lot of time on the phone. And she was just absolutely wonderful. Lilia Moilo, our associate producer. Yes. Yeah. Um, she was absolutely wonderful because she's she understands NDE and she understands what uh, I mean, I was in the military 20 years. I was in the military. I know guys from the military that have PTS and who struggle. And I'm sure they can't find anybody. They don't even know what happened to them, probably, or where they went or what they visited to. So it's important for us. It's important for me. I think part of my mission is to help people and help people understand because I certainly didn't uh, before my near-death experience. And it took me by myself, my diligent to research and find out what happened to me. And, and fortunately, I was able to find some people that understood near-death experiences and wanted to listen to my story and, and um, helped me in understanding what exactly happened to me and, and um, continue to help me. Uh, in, in understanding what I experienced. And that's helped like no wonder. I'm blessed by all the people that have come into my life. Yeah. Well, Randy, we've been, we've been blessed with your story. So thank you so much. Uh, we're, we are about out of time, but uh, I'd like you to, uh, you're working on a book about your story and um, it's not, it's not published yet, but tell us what the title is going to be. In case yeah, um, folks would like to be looking for it when it comes out. Yeah, it, it's Surviving COVID-19 to the Veil and Back, and it's a family odyssey. Because uh, mm. I've asked my, my, my wife and my three girls to take uh, and write one chapter out of the book of what they experienced and what they were feeling. And a little bit about each one of what they did. The prayers, certainly the prayer chain, totally, totally saved me yes the inner the internet you know going out to seventy five thousand people my daughter advocating for me and my beautiful lovely wife here at home we've been married 49 years hmm. just keeping the family unit together uh and and be sure everybody was getting along and working and helping me to survive yeah. so i'm only here by the grace of god and the goodwill of my family so well, thank you. Thank you, Randy, Thank you, uh, for sharing your amazing story of your obsession with death and how three COVID, four COVID NDEs saved your life. If folks would like to hear this uh, show again or any of our more than 400 archived 
ad-free NDE interviews, go to TalkZone's NDE radio site and hit the Past Shows button. Or go to our YouTube channel, NDE Radio with Lee Whitting, where you can subscribe to and comment on the complete NDE radio library. And be sure to like, follow, and share our NDE Radio Facebook page. Search NDE Radio with Lee Whitting on your Facebook app. And listen again next Monday, 11 a.m. Eastern, at Talk Zone for more NDE Radio. I'm your host, Lee Whitting, saying thanks for listening.